Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. On today's episode, we're speaking to Martha Pierce. She is an educator, trainer, consultant, international trauma specialist, and a registered psychotherapist. Martha spent the first 15 years of her career teaching about food, nutrition, and quality food service courses at the high school and college level in Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Ontario. She began her own recovery from an eating disorder, food addiction, and alcoholism over 35 years ago, and in time, after much healing and further professional development, started a new career. For over 30 years, she has worked as a counselor and psychotherapist in private practice, specializing in the treatment of addictions, especially food addiction, eating disorders, trauma, and codependency. Today, we talked to Martha about her personal journey with food addiction and what her aha moment was. Does she endorse a specific food plan? What are her thoughts on 12-step work? Why is it so important to address codependency and how codependency contributes to food addiction and food recovery? She also shares her experience working in the residential treatment setting at Renaissance with Vera. There are many takeaways in this episode as Martha shares what years of experience working in this field has taught her. Thank you again for listening. We're so grateful to all of you for sharing this podcast with others. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am co-host today along with Clarissa Kennedy. Today, we are speaking to Martha Pierce. Martha Pierce is a registered psychotherapist with a specialization in that triad of concerns that we know so well at Food Junkies Podcast, food addiction, trauma, and codependency. She started her career as a nutritionist, but then her struggles with alcohol and food led her into the early days of the food addiction field. She got sobriety and then teamed up with one of the leading clinicians in the field at that time, Kay Shepard. Together, they did numerous food addiction workshops, introducing Canada to the world of food addiction. Martha then expanded her scope to include trauma and codependency under the mentorship of Dr. Kate Hudgens. Today, we will focus on the codependency angle of her work, and at a later date, we will delve into the topic of trauma and food addiction, both really important concerns. I know Martha well because she was the lead clinician at the two food addiction programs at Renaissance, and currently she has a thriving full-time practice in Hagersville, Ontario. So welcome, Martha. Thanks, Vera. It's great to see you again. Yes. So we're going to get your, if you don't mind, your personal story. And if you don't mind, can you give us your personal journey with food addiction, the aha moment when you knew that the issue was addiction in terms of your issues with food? Okay. Well, I am originally from the United States. And when I hit bottom at that time, it was my compulsive overeating because that's what it was called. In those days in Overeaters Anonymous, my first OA meeting was in 1985. I'm not old. And I was at an adult children of an alcoholics conference, which 
talks is about my trauma history, which was part of the, at that I had gone to a workshop and I had heard that people who grew up in alcoholic homes sometimes developed eating issues. So I went to this and I thought, oh, maybe they're talking about me. Meanwhile, I was, I had had chronic issues with overeating since I was preschool age. And uh, the thing I was most drawn to was sugar. So I joined Overeaters Anonymous when I got back to South Central Pennsylvania, a small town called Bedford, Pennsylvania, and started going to meetings in Johnstown and Altoona. And I met two women who became my co-sponsors. One was Dot, and she was so good at helping me. I kept relapsing. I kept relapsing. I could not stay abstinent. That back then the story was no specific food plan, three meals a day, nothing in between, and one day at a time. And she was so unconditionally loving to me. And she would, and I would, so I was honest with her and I would keep calling her and telling her, I can't stay abstinent. I can't stay abstinent. And I kept relapsing. And the thing that was the common denominator was this thing called sugar. And she would say, honey, God forgives you. I've forgiven you. And our work is to get you to forgive you. And let's try to figure out why you are relapsing. What is it? What's going on? And so my other co-sponsor, we're talking 1986, Vera, 1986. Where were you in 1986? Don't tell me. But where we think about where you were at in 1986 and where we were at with the concept of food addiction in 1986. Yeah, and Rosemary Rose, Rose, Rose Kay, Rosemary Kay was my other sponsor. And she had lost 150 pounds and was a normal-weighted woman. She was a miracle in my life. And she called me one day and she said, Honey, if you won't do it for yourself, do it for me. And for just the next two weeks, do not eat sugar. Stop making your road trips because I lived an hour from Hershey, Pennsylvania, and I would make road trips to Hershey. And it wasn't for the sights, believe you me. It was to stock up on my drug of choice because the prices were really good in bulk if you catch my drift. And she begged me. She said, I mean, she was in tears. She said, do it for me because I love you. And sugar is killing you. 1986. That was, and so I did what she told me because no one had ever treated me with so much unconditional love and regard. And those two teamed up and just loved me so much. And so I did what she told me and I got the worst case of the flu I had ever had in my life. And that's what I thought I had. I mean, I could only work half days. I was working in the food service industry at the time. Of course, doesn't an alcoholic work it as a bartender? And she kept checking in with me, and I told her how sick I was. And she said, oh, honey, you don't have the flu. You're in withdrawal. No one had ever talked to me about sugar withdrawal. And the only thing, I mean, it was an outside issue to Overeaters Anonymous. The only, only book that we had on the topic back then was Sugar Blues. That's incredible. Yeah, that's how that was my aha moment that I had a problem with sugar. I still had miles to go, but that was my aha moment that I was addicted to sugar. It was my drug, 1986. 1986. Yeah, it was my poison. It was my poison. 
So did you get abstinent then? So that was when I knew that I could not eat sugar because what that withdrawal I went through was horrific, was absolutely horrific. I mean, with the individuals I work with and they go through these withdrawals and they last three to five days or 14 days, I'm envious and jealous. I mean, I had no withdrawal that was like that. It was, but I had been binging on sugar since I was four years old. You know, I'd crawl up on the kitchen counter and mom kept the baking supplies in the very top shelf. And I didn't go for this. I didn't go for the baked goods. I went straight for, it's my story, the brown sugar, the chocolate chips, the, the, the sugar cubes. I went straight for the hard stuff since I was preschool age. So I was in my early 30s at the time. So you figure that out. It was a 25 or 30, 25, at least 25, almost 30 year addiction to sugar that I was withdrawing from. And I was only in my early 30s. That's incredible when you think about that. That's how long some of us live with this addiction before we catch on. Like That's just so incredible. Yeah. So that was my aha moment for sugar. And then I was work, doing work for Gary Seidler from U.S. Journal Health Communication, who is the publisher for Kay Shepard's book, Food Addiction, The Body Knows. He was expanding his workshops, speaking engagements that he was having people do in the area of adult children of alcoholics conferences up here in Canada. I mean, I, and I, by that time I, I had moved from the United States up to Canada and this was in 1989. And he asked me to review Kay's book and it was more or less a validation of what I intuitive all already knew. Uh, the big thing was where the grains were concerned. Prior to reading Kay's book, I had already gone to gluten-free because my older sister had been diagnosed with celiac disease and was in really bad shape, was so far advanced that she was really not like absorbing the nutritional value. It was really quite advanced before they got it. I mean, back in those days, I'd never heard of celiac disease. So, and I found that when I, I had gotten so clean, just even by withdrawing from the sugar, that when I, I found that when I ate wheat, like a, a even like, like a whole wheat muffin that was, that had no sugar in it, the whole inside of my mouth would go numb. Like I'd had too much to drink. I just, it really, and I thought, okay, so this must not be right for me either. I'm, I talk about, I don't talk about addiction. I talk about, I'm allergic. I'm yeah, allergic yeah. to the sugar. I'm allergic to alcohol. I, talk, I mean, Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about to the allergy to alcohol. So I'm allergic to sugar, you know. And then your allergy to flour I, or, or whatever it was. Uh, the gluten, you recognize that once the sugar was gone, I guess. Eh? Right. As soon as, so yes, I found because when I was doing it all, yeah. I couldn't differentiate what I, and what happened was then I got rid of the sugar and I still had trouble with being, you know, was I abstinent from sugar? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, first I got sober from alcohol and okay. And then I went to, my, my cravings for sugar just 
got worse than they'd ever been. But alcohol is the simplest form of sugar there is. So I, you know, to deal with the, I mean, and doesn't the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talk about, well, if you have a craving for alcohol, to have a little piece of candy. So I did that. (laughs) Until it just made my eating disorder that much worse. So then I got rid of the sugar and I found myself craving like flour products, which like had never been something that I was overly interested in, especially if it didn't have sugar in it. So I went to flour and fat and I found that the flour was numbing the inside of my mouth. So I thought, well, this isn't right. And because I had a foods and nutrition background, I remembered that, you know, if you wait long enough, starch breaks down into a sugar and it's like oh this is not fun at all so it wasn't it wasn't just an issue with sugar it was it was anything made out of gluten and then my sister got this diagnosis of celiac disease and it's like oh well i don't know if i've got celiac disease but i think i have a problem with gluten i was later tested for celiac and i i had been free i had taken gluten out of my food plan long enough that i tested negative and the only way i'd find out if i have celiac is to is to load me up with you know a gluten products and i'm not going to do that yeah so so, so you went from there to, so you got abstinent from sugar and flour. Abstinence from sugar and flour. And then I, I read Kay's book yeah. and that gave me, though I had a foods and nutrition background, her, her food plan worked for me for a while, but I, I found that the, it worked for me for a long while. And, but I found as I was delving into doing my own trauma work, that I was having trouble eating the starch and grain amounts that she suggested in moderation. Now, knowing what I, I know about the, the vagus nerve, which is stimulated at the base of the neck when we're doing trauma work, it, you know, it ends in the gut. I get it now that it was an issue for me. It was too much starch and grain. And so I tried just cutting back on the starch and grain. And then eventually I ended up going, you know, not doing starch and grain for a long time. I am back doing some grain in a a very small amount. And I can get into that later. But for a long time, I just was completely then free of starch and grain. Okay. So you followed the K-Shepherd for quite a long time. You yes. said, and then you started working with her, doing all these workshops. Yes. So what happened was Mama B, Bernice L. Oh, yes. Uh, I remember her. Yeah. Bernice yeah. L was the lady that brought K-Shepherd to Canada. When I first moved here to Canada, I met Bernice at an OA meeting. And she was very welcoming to me. And she was interested in the K Shepherd food plan and she was not able to make a go of it on her own. And she and her husband wintered, they were retirees, wintered in Florida. And she started attending Kay Shepherd workshops and meetings where Kay was, invited Kay to come up to Hamilton, Ontario to do workshops. And by that time, I was doing a small private practice. And the way that started was that I, I was, when I moved to Canada, I got involved in a, 
an aftercare group for people, healthcare professionals, Homewood Treatment Center that had a drug and alcohol program and they ran a caduceus group. Yeah, caduceus groups. Right. Well, I, um, through Dr. George McDermott up in Barrie, I, I had met him at a conference that I'd attended when I first moved here. So God guided. And he referred me to a caduceus group in Dundas, Ontario, which is about 45 minutes from where I live. And because I was having trouble getting adjusted from my life and recovery life here in Pennsylvania to up here in Canada. And for five years, I was in this caduceus group. It was a wonderful experience with recovering alcoholics, drug addicts, and they were all healthcare professionals. And actually, some of the docs, some of the physicians were very interested in this concept of carbohydrate craving. And I introduced them to Kay Shepard's book. And wow. two of the docs were really interested in it for their patients and for themselves. So it was a really wonderful experience. And the GP psychotherapist that ran the group knew I had this foods and nutrition background. And he, one night after group, he handed me the name of this woman and her phone number. And he said, call her. And I said, why? I mean, at this point, I was doing some work, doing some teaching at Fanshawe College down in Simcoe, Ontario. And it was my old career of, of the food service industry. And it was a good job, but really wasn't conducive to my recovery at all. And he said, she runs the Southern Ontario office for Parkside Lutheran Hospital out of Chicago, Illinois. It was back in the days where you could go to the States for treatment for eating disorders and addictions, and OHIP covered it. So I did the aftercare for the folks from Ontario that went for eating disorders treatment at Parkside Lutheran in Chicago, and then did telephones, got telephone support from the, I don't think you knew that about me, of the miles we've traveled together. That was my first job and my first gig in the field when I moved here to Canada. I didn't know about the Caduceus group. I was in a Caduceus group. I wish wish you had been my counselor there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wasn't counselor. I was there for my own own recovery in the caduceus group oh, okay all right anyway and I, I got really upset when the nurses were passing around bags of candy yes. at the caduceus group and i said i couldn't stay in the caduceus group if that's what they were going to do so anyway i stood up for myself and uh, they got rid of the candy and ate it on, on break but anyway so i i did aftercare for parkside lutheran it was a marvelous experience and then worked with the counselors and therapists at parkside lutheran over the telephone to get training to work with these folks who were anorexic bulimic compulsive overeaters but of course they expected everybody to eat all foods in moderation and i'd work with these women who were bulimic and compulsive eaters and were told they had to eat you know a serving a dessert of a small bowl of ice cream so martha did you know then that for some eating people with eating disorder that there was something else going on that it wasn't just well i felt terrible for him because i was going through my mind was you know it's like asking an alcoholic to control drink yeah so 
it was really hard to do that. I mean, it was a wonderful experience, but it was really hard to do that part of the gig. And of course, I they weren't going to listen to me. <laughs> it's Parkside Lutheran, right? I mean, that was too big. And I was, who was I but this lowly counselor in working out of Burlington, Ontario, Canada. I mean, that was just up in the, near the North Pole someplace, right? But anyway, it was a stepping stone, and my boss was thought highly enough of my work. She started referring individual clients to me, and that started to build my private practice. Funding dried up, and I thought, that's it. My work in the field is done. And I thought I had no more office in Burlington. And so I thought, well, if people want to keep seeing me, I guess they're going to have to come to Hagersville. Who in the world is going to come all the way to Hagersville, Ontario to see me? And you know the rest of the story. I'm blessed that people chose to come to see me. Yeah. And so how did you meet uh, Dr. Hudskin? Like you, then you, you went from food addiction, you started to expand your practice into right. food so, addiction, which we're so, going to talk about. So the cleaner, I, I was really clean with my food for a long time. And unfortunately, you know, the reason I came to Canada was I met a Canadian while I was at these adult children of alcoholic conferences back home in the States. And what resulted was a romance. And I moved to Canada and I married the gentleman. And um, unfortunately, because of undiagnosed, untreated mental illness, the marriage became one of domestic violence. And also what was going on, I mean, I, I ended up ending that marriage. It took me seven years to get out of it. It was very traumatic for me because I didn't know he had sponsored me to come to Canada. I'm a permanent resident. You know, I'm not a citizen and I didn't know if I could stay. So it was very traumatic. I asked for what little family I had left back home in the States. I asked for help. I came from a dysfunctional family and basically I was told you made your bed now lay in it. And so I felt really isolated and alone. And I reached out to George McDermott up in Barrie for some support. And because as I ended the marriage, I also found out my sister, who had 12-stepped me for recovery from my alcoholism, had been diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease hmm. at the age of, and this, she was in her late 40s. And she was all, basically, I knew that once she left, I had no connection with family left. She was like, she was nine years older than me, and she was like my surrogate mom. Yeah. So my world was falling apart, and certainly I was experiencing a lot of trauma. So I reached out to Dr. McDermott, and he agreed to see me, thank God. I had referred a lot of people to his practice over the years and he was up in Barrie. And so for once a week for several years, I drove to Barrie for my appointments with him. And at the time I started to see him, he had decided to, he already did psychodrama in through the Toronto School of Psychodrama as part of his work. And he had brought Dr. Kate Hudgens from Charlottesville, Virginia, up to his practice. And the work she does is a specialized form of psychodrama and experiential methods to deal with trauma, complex PTSD, and PTSD, which is me. Okay. I grew up in a violent alcoholic home, and I had PTSD from yeah. what I experienced in my marriage. 
And so I needed help badly or I was going to lose my sobriety and my abstinence. And I didn't. Okay. And then through your work with her? Through my work with her and my own healing, then I, I got into the training program that she offers. And I've just continued to do ongoing training and professional upgrading over the years. I've been in relationship with her for like 25 years. So, and so it sounds to me like you learned from her, like the code, the trauma piece, which you talked about and the codependency, uh, because we're, it's going to be too large a topic. We're just going to focus on the codependency piece. So Chrissy, do you want to, let's explore some of that angle of things. Yeah. So can you explain to our listeners why addressing codependency is such an important component of your practice and why you believe it's so essential as an essential piece for food addiction recovery? Well, you know, I like to ask folks to to give me a, a food history in terms of, you know, what age and stage of life they started medicating, medicating with food and what the family's relationship is with food. Uh, Different cultures, different, I mean, I grew up in a family where food was love, right? You know, so, and the kind of food that was love is food that I can no longer, it's not food, it's poison for me, right? But it was, yeah, I made this for you, you have to eat it, right? And so I, I like to find out if an individual's dysfunctional relationship with food or their food addiction started, unbeknownst to them, when they were a child, then those patterns, those neural pathways in their brain about what food means and what that relationship to that food means, that's ingrained, right? That's a value system that's, that's deeply ingrained. And so that it's not just about the food, it's about a relationship with another person or a family system or a culture or a faith, right? A religion. Right. So when you're addressing the food, you have to address those relationships that you just right. mentioned. Right. And codependency is my identity is externally motivated. Recovery from any addiction, as far as I'm concerned, is establishing by working the steps, by working with a sponsor, by doing your healing work, is about establishing an internally motivated identity, right? Whoever or whatever I put before my recovery is what I lose when I relapse. You know, I matter. I'm the most, you know, my recovery is the most important thing in my life. And if we've grown up in a family system that we don't have support for our recovery from our food addiction or really food allergies, the way I, I work it is, you know, with the people that love me, I have food allergies. I mean, yeah, you can, they don't respond to this thing called food addiction, but it's really, it's, it's an allergy. It's an allergy. And people in my world who are not into addiction and don't have food issues, they respond to, I'm allergic. I just can't eat that stuff. And so it is about, and, you know, with the food addiction piece, oftentimes there is low self-worth and low self-esteem. And so what you think of me is more important than me taking care of myself. That's codependency. And so what you think of me, whether you approve of me, whether you value me, whether you love me, that's more important than me taking care of myself. 
especially where the, you know, sitting around the dinner table at a family meal. Oh my God, if I weigh and measure my food, if I turn down, you know, granny's, I mean, I, I were walking down memory lane, how could I possibly turn down my grandmother's peach pie or my great aunt's God knows what, right? But it's, I would have to in this state. I mean, how could I possibly do that to them? So then how do you work with individuals on addressing and seeing that codependency and kind of applying that to their healing? And so it's about grieving. I mean, I spend a lot of time and we did this at the treatment center as well, but it's a grieving process that first grieving that certain foods are are no longer a part of my menu, my safe menu, and learning what the benefits are of not eating. You know, what's the value? What's the quality of my life without these food items in my life? I mean, in my case, you know, my dad was died of his alcoholism at the age of 55. My mom was dead of congestive heart failure at the age of 64. My sister was dead at 55. I'm 68 and trying to figure out if I'm ever going to retire. I have no role model in my family system of what it's like to retire. I can't imagine ever doing that. But, and I can't, I mean, because nobody lived long enough to do that, right? I mean, that's, I'm a miracle. I'm a miracle because, I mean, and so people have to understand that recovery means they're a miracle. There's a miracle in recovery and the quality of life and their health is going to be so much better. So in relation to the recognizing that there's this codependent relationship with food and with the people around that, that represent that, how do you help people get out of that? Like, like it's, that, that's probably one of the biggest issues uh, that right. I see. Right. In, yes. how, do, how do we say no? It's about educating them. And I often I'm available to do sessions with their loved ones right? And offer education to whether it's their partner, whether it's, I mean, if I can spend time with the people that are closest to them and have an honest honest conversation and with them and ask questions about what they've seen in their loved one that is the food addict. And, you know, do you really see that they're happy? Do you really see that they have quality of life? Do you really see that they're healthy? If them making some changes in the kind of food that they eat and the quantity of food that they eat and going to some support groups and so on, do you not want them to be healthier? Do you not want them to be more available to you? So, you know, you mentioned that there was, uh, you know, the people who don't understand and they're sort of out of the loop and we can teach them. You can teach them by these sessions. What about the uh, person who is not a normie? They're actually an undiagnosed food addict. They're living with another food addict. That's hard. Yeah. Like that's that's probably more common than the normie who just doesn't get it. That's hard. That's hard. And I still offer to do education and I don't take their inventory. I keep the focus on their loved one and I ask them to please offer their loved one respect for what they need to do for their health. They keep focusing on their health, their physical health and their mental health. And this is what they need to do for their physical health and their mental health. Now, Martha, I remember uh, that you, I don't know if you still do it because of COVID, but you had like weekends so that you had actually people coming to your house in Hagersville. 
Right. Um, and because of COVID, I, I have not done that for quite some time. I'm hoping to perhaps either in the summer or in the fall actually do something like that, not just by myself, but with Dr. Kate and actually do some experiential right. weekends. And when we do that, the food is always abstinent, right? That right. We offer. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a combination of food and experiential work as well. Yeah. So can you speak a little bit about what it was like to work at Renaissance and what did you learn about food addiction in that treatment setting? Well, actually, before let me just introduce the Renaissance thing. Okay. So, so um, because, yeah, we wanted to get to that. So, so, you know, Martha, as you know, we were trying to figure out how to open up a food addiction program at Renaissance because we got this uh, person that donated quite a bit of money to doing so. And I immediately thought of you, you know, working off doing these retreats and talking about food addiction. And so I asked Martha to come in and I'm not a therapist clinician in the way that you are. So you took that front end of things and I took the sort of more educational piece. So yeah, so there you were, you were the lead clinician building this program from scratch. It was an inpatient program for a month. Then it became an outpatient program. And anyway, take it from there, Martha. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was an opportunity of a lifetime. And thank you for including me in that journey. There was certainly lots of growing pains and lots of... <laughs> yes, there were. <laughs> lots of different viewpoints and lots of wonderful women in the process. What did I learn about food addiction? I learned that that a, a variety of people were in different places. I mean, I've been at this for like over 35 years, right? And so where I'm at in my belief system about a uh, definition of abstinence was very different than some of the other people that we were working with. And so my attitude about what abstinence is supposed to be, you just eat real food. You don't try to make pretend food from what, you know, like make a pretend pizza or fake baking or all that kind of stuff. It's because I went through all of that and it, and my view is it just doesn't work. You eat the real thing, you eat real food. And when you're new in recovery, no, it doesn't taste good because your taste buds are used to ultra processed foods. And, you know, that's part of the detox and withdrawal process. So I learned that different people are in different places. And I was very determined <laughs> about what the definition of menu needed to look like. I thought that having a safe place to go and go through detox and withdrawal was wonderful. In a perfect world, it would be great that, of course, it'd be funded. And I know I mean, that's my dream. I don't know if that'll happen in my lifetime or not, but funded inpatient treatment. And like they do for some of the drug and alcohol programs where they, you know, the first two weeks you're in treatment, you're in your safe place. And then after that, you go home on weekends. I would love to see, would have loved to have seen them have to go home on weekends and have exposure therapy and then come back, right? And come back to the safe place and say, oh my God, this is what I had to, you know, this is what I experienced and have them start to, you know, 
get the kitchen organized and do some education with their families and, and start the re-entry and then have like two full weeks back in the treatment center setting, right? Rather than having the, the whole time in treatment and then have to do all of that re-entry. Yeah. I remember that a couple of the things that were so important was you just mentioned that safe place that, and also the validation, like people that were coming in just for food addiction and they're coming into a center where people were there for alcohol and cocaine and there they were on the same par in the same groups and they were safe. Like that's unheard of. Right. And when they would come into to sessions with me and and the anger, right? Yes. The, yeah. the anger and having permission to just let it I mean, you know, a couple of women would come up and say, You want me to eat all these vegetables? Okay. I've got you know, and it's like, yeah, get it out. Come on, come on, <laughs> give me more, give me more, come on, let it out, let it out. Yes, this is the angry stage of the grieving process. Oh, oh, you're taking all the fun out of it. <laughs> it's yeah, it's just a place to they just for them to really be real. And the validation, and it's like, I'm not crazy. This is really real. This is really, you know, this is... So, you know, in, in such an intense setting, did you learn stuff there or see stuff there, successes that, like, different than in an outpatient setting? Like, like Oh, sure. Practice? Oh, sure. So, because, like, yeah. Sure. It, I mean, sure. Because, um, you know, being in a treatment center setting and with the same group of individuals for what 21 days i think was the length of time that was 21 21 or 28 i think it probably was just 21 yeah whatever yeah. Uh, for the length of time they were together there was more of a chance to break denial and, and have it stay broken right and begin the grieving process and really step one we are powerless our lives are unmanageable, you know, came to, but I mean, really had a chance to really, really anchor in step one in terms of the powerlessness. And it's not just me. Oh, it's not just me. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I'm not alone with this. I, I remember that people would say frequently that they were surprised because, you know, the idea of alcoholics and drug addicts, like for food, food, it's like, oh my, that's them, that how similar they felt with the other women. And also that the other women were going, wow, that's food addiction. I got that too. Like they wanted to eat the same food. Like it really broke those barriers. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, and I've said this for years, I wonder what would happen in a drug and alcohol treatment center if the food that was fed, the only food that was offered was a food addiction food plan. Oh, I'd love that. And I wonder what would happen in a psychiatric facility. What would happen? What would happen? I've said this for years as well. If the only food that was offered was food addiction, food plant food, no ultra processed food, no sugar, no sodas, no pop, whatever you would, whatever your language, you know, I wonder what would, no caffeine for God's sakes. Was there any experience about the institutional setting itself, like the residential piece that you would like to see continue? Like, why would you like to see something like that continue? Is there a place for something like that? I mean, it's not funding, oh, right? Now, but... Of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. I'd love to see it continue. Where are you going to get the money, Vera? Let's go. Yeah, I know. <laughs>
Martha, I'm wondering, you know, everything that you've been talking about today, I just relate to so much. A, I was born in Burlington. I've been a member of a caduceus group. I would have driven to Hagersville had I known you were there. (laughs) All these things. And like, you know, definitely got connected through Barry as well. So like that, the whole story has been very, you know, I can relate to so much of what you're saying. And now I am doing outpatient clinician work with food addicts. And I'm wondering in your years of experience, you know, what have you learned that you needed to become more flexible with, or what did you, what have you found in your years of practice that is now you've had to change your mind about, or just kind of become a little bit more direct or yeah, I'm just interested. Like how has your practice changed in so many years? There are certain things where food is concerned I'm in Hagersville, so I'm I'm literally right across the street from Six Nations Reserve. And so there's certain foods that and this I had a really frank conversation recently, one of my clients who is indigenous, and there are certain food items that would not be considered abstinent and on a food addiction food plan because of the culture she's from and her genetic makeup, she can eat that and she's abstinent with it. And so, for example, if she goes to a regular, you know, works with a sponsor who's not culturally sensitive and she reports what she's eating, which is like like a dried corn soup. I mean, we don't do corn, but if it's dried corn that's organic and because of her heritage, spiritually it's an important part of her culture, right? And she can eat it, right? And so I I really needed to be, because of where I live, I'm much more tuned into like food choices, for example, that are, I mean, appropriate. And I find that that she is, that because of her, her genetic makeup, she's much more prone to like eating more vegetarian, right? And I can remember myself, and I I made an amends to this that there were like her her protein choices were such in the past that it was like you're not getting enough high quality protein, and it's like it's just working quite well for her, right? I wasn't taking into consideration the cultural difference, and I you know, and I really so I'm I have learned to be more careful about that across the board where cultural differences are concerned. Yeah. Yeah. I can appreciate that. Yeah. Just having to have more flexibility. Martha, before you've been kind of weaving in and out uh, this sort of 12 steps model, because that's where you came from. And do you still use that now? Is that a piece of your practice or like what's your relationship with that professionally? Professionally, the people I'm privileged to work with in my practice are not beginning stage food addicts in recovery, right? I work with people that are food addicts with trauma and mental health issues. I'm all for, I love the 12 steps. 12 steps saved my life. I'm all for the 12 steps and I fully support for the clients that I'm privileged to work with. I love the OA mental health meeting because it's so compassionate and understanding. You know what I'm talking about? There's a, an Overeaters Anonymous meeting for that is mental health based. Yeah. No, I didn't know that specifically, but yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. There's, it's specifically for folks with mental health issues. You I used to be part of RFA or something like that. Well, I that program has just about. I think there's one meeting left. Okay. I'm not, I'm not involved with it's that. More then. I support people going to an Overeaters Anonymous meeting as long as the program is not rigid about the food planning as long as they're not rigid about working a step four people who have trauma and mental health issues mm-hmm. we don't have much time left here but i am very pardon you can save the trauma stuff for the next time We're, we want to i'll just say that something has happened in some of these food related 12-step programs that i'm really uncomfortable and very sad and concerned about clients i'm working with if they're having issues they're not stable in their mental health or they're in trauma spirals or ptsd or cptsd is active they might have problems with their food and they're getting fired by sponsors if i had had if when i was going through all i was going through i told you how unconditionally loving yeah, my I know. sponsors were and they lived that slogan, let us love you until you can learn to love yourself. If I had not gotten that, you guys never would have met me because I would have been dead from suicide. And I'm not joking. So when I hear that my clients that I'm working with are getting fired by sponsors, I'm really not okay with that. Martha, I'm uh, so glad you're saying that because I've I, had similar experience. I, well. I'm not okay with that. What happened to the Overeaters mm-hmm. Anonymous? that saved my life what happened to it i'm really uncomfortable with this if a sponsor is uncomfortable with where a sponsee is at because of the complexity of their recovery then own that i don't feel like i'm qualified to support you for where you're at then own that take responsibility for that that's different yeah that's different yeah Okay. Yeah. Thank you for speaking about that because I do think it exists, right? And it definitely is something that can send somebody out and they may never return and And, it could re-traumatize them, right? Yeah. Talk about low self-worth, low self-esteem and and kicking a gal. They should should own it and send the person to you to do Yes. (laughs) Go see Martha. (laughs) Next time. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I would, if I'm going to have a little, we'll close up here with a bit of a signature question. We'll ask you another signature question in part two, but this one is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about codependency in food addiction recovery, what would it be? You know what? Those people really did love you. I'm thinking of the people from my past, Mm -hmm. right? That I was so concerned that were going to abandon me if I didn't eat, right? What they put in front of me. And in my current life, they love you. They love you. It's not about the food. They love you. They Mm -hmm. love me. Wow. Yeah. That's great, Martha. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank yes. you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. I hope so we, we are going to grab you uh, soon, and we're going to get into the whole trauma issue of food yep. addiction. So part two. Part two is okay. All righty. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. 
You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.